Welcome to episode number 34 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here as always with Frank Zafaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today, joining us from Tokyo, is Felipe Pepe, editor of the CRPG Book Project, a collaborative book that documents over 400 games in what most would call specifically the computer role-playing game genre, or the CRPG. Uh, The book is available as a limited print edition with all proceeds benefiting charity or absolutely free as a digital PDF on its website. Uh, Felipe, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, the, the CRPG book is something that I've been uh, aware of for quite a while, but uh, honestly didn't look at until recently, and it's uh, pretty phenomenal. Can you kind of give us some backstory? Where did this book come from? So the whole project began uh, first. Give me a bit more of backstory. Is like as a Brazilian when I gr- was growing up in Brazil, we are not really known uh, as a country about video games that has a lot of video games release. We are a country that, because of military dictatorship and a bunch of things like this, we actually didn't have any of those computer games released in Brazil. It was actually like illegal to own foreign computers until 1992. But because my father used to work with importing computers and things like this, I grew up with a computer in my house. It was very rare, this in Brazil. It was illegal, but I had it. <laughs> and I grew up playing RPGs. But it was something that no one in, in Brazil had. Like we had like the consoles, we have JRPGs, but I had this always this fascination by RPGs, especially with Fallout, the first one in 1997. Like I was in love with that game. And when the internet appeared, like in for me in my house, it was in 2002, 2004, more or less. I started to get into internet forums and learning more about the whole history. You know, like about Ultima, Wizardry, Might and Magic, all those games, I have never heard about them before. So I started playing them and doing a lot of research, really. Like, I was really fascinated by this. And I was a member of several forums that were discussing about this, uh, the RPG Codex, the RPG Watch. And over time, we were like, okay, this is really interesting, but it's very rare to get a full picture of the whole history, you know? Uh, People usually talk more about console RPGs and more on the recent releases. It's very rare to see someone talking about, uh, let's say, Wasteland, Might and Magic, the previous games. So we decided to make a list. We made a voting with about like uh, 200 people at the RPG Codex voting on the best RPGs of all time, which is something that is amazing to do in our forums because you always get like very different opinions Well, right, and this is a very specialized forum. This isn't like (laughs) GameFAQs or IGN or something. Like these, these are these are the nerds, right? These are the 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 hardcore. We know this genre, people. Yeah, it is including like if you compare this with NeoGAF. NeoGAF also does a list like this, like the top RPGs of all time. Chrono Trigger. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) On the RPG Codex, you could not vote for any console game. It was just computers. And the list is almost like the opposite of NeoGAF because NeoGAF voted for Fallout 1 like 
number 97. Wow. Yeah, in the codex was number two. Yeah. So, <laughs> so well, wait, it wasn't number one must have been Planescape Torment. Of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. I see so you that, are a man of culture. That, that, that is your chrono trigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's like those super niche RPGs that no one else talks about, like Arcanan or Wizardry 8, Gothic 2, you know, like those very European German RPGs. So we did that list. And there's a lot of lists on the internet. So because those games are a bit exotic, let's say to a more mainstream audience, we also ask people to write a paragraph explaining why you should play this game. And this became a huge article that we posted. And it was, the goal was to make a top 50, but then we kept including, and it was a top 72 best RPGs of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And we added like screenshots uh, release dates, uh, the developer info, and those paragraphs explaining why you should play every single one of those games. And this was done in 2014, like very early 2014, and it was a hit. It became like super popular on the website. Uh, I think it's the most popular article we ever posted. And from that came the idea, look, we should expand this. Like people were printing that guide and keeping the house, so we're like, we should make a, a real book about this. Then we can add more information. And at this moment, it was like a very naive project because we were like, okay, the whole voting and getting the reviews took me like two months. Mm -hmm. So for sure, I can make a full book in like six months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And how long did it take you? Four years. (laughs) And that still sounds like a pretty good pace to me, to be perfectly honest, for a book this size. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, it was four years for the first edition. If you count the second right, one, that right, I'm not right. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so you have this idea for it to become a book. You've got a list of 72 games with, with you know, one paragraph descriptions. I mean, where, where do you go from here? How do you How do you begin to translate this thing into a book? So the whole thing, like, those were the best games. We, we, we used, like, a very... A more complex voting system. It wasn't just like popularity. We use a Bayesian average and people could score it. So it wasn't just say like... Wait, did you assign mo- stats to the games? Yes, of course. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we are at the RPG Codex. We have to do things like that. <laughs> it was a point-by system, which is exactly the system that Fallout uses. So you had the number of points that you could <laughs> Yeah, and then we do like a bias and average. So you had like a mix of very popular games and very niche games together. So even things like uh, Wizard and Warriors, which is this very obscure game that the Wizardry developer did after leaving Sertek. I think it has like five people who play it. All the five gave it a five or a uh, ten out of ten. So it yeah. is on the list. So something can make it onto your list with this scoring system if you just have a very passionate, tiny fan base. Yeah. I, <laughs> I kind of like that. Because they're going to make an argument for why you should play that that game that they're so enamored with. I like it. It's also a bit dangerous because if you know the internet, every single game release, there's a guy who's very passionate about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. If you played this when you were exactly 13, it yeah. is the greatest <laughs> game you've ever played. Yeah, and it doesn't matter that it's like a, a black and white game released for the Amstrad CPC that has like only 20 copies. The guy bought one and it's the best game ever. <laughs> but 
it also the list had those things which was very interesting and i actually went after those guys so there is a game like uh one that is super obscure it's called alternate reality and i think it's from 84 82 but it's like uh alternate reality is from 85 is an atari 8-bit computer a game it's this very weird game about like you travel to another reality, you're taken by a spaceship to another fantasy reality. It's almost like those isekai manga that are so popular right now. You're sent to a fantasy world where you fight. Mm-hmm. Not only the guy is like the number one fan, he's developing like a, a port, a Unity port to make like an update of the game. And I got that guy to write about why this game is cool. So the whole book, I told them, please don't be like a fanboy. But tell us why this game is interesting, why people should know about it. Why are you devoting so much time to it? So those were very interesting, but we also had like some huge gaps in the in the voting. Like we did a list of the top 72 RPGs and there was no Skyrim, there was no Oblivion, there was no Fallout 3 because those aren't real RPGs at the RPG Codex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if... if- People in the mainstream like them, then they don't count, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Right? Like they're done well, by Bethesda, like for consoles. Like, <laughs> they're too new. Dang it! Um, but okay, so you know, did you decide right away on it being four hundred, or you know, like like how how do you, how do you make the jump from seventy two to four hundred and? And also at this point, are you, um, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe this book is the top 400. I think it's the 400 worth examining, right? Yeah, because exactly this, it was 72 top. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to add a few ones that are worth examining. That's how you go from 72 to 400. Right. Because you start to go and they're like, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. And. A lot of things are interesting when you look into computer games. <laughs> so, I mean, that that judging by the intro of the book, um, that's the criteria. It's like these 400 games are either really good or at least interesting. And, is, and is, was that the criteria? Like, did, did games that are just, you know, they're okay and don't have new ideas, are those the kind of games that didn't make the cut? Yeah, this and the third criteria would be like historical relevance. Mm, because mm. there are some games who are like kind of mm-hmm. shit, but uh, <laughs> but they're they're really important. Like, and they help you give an idea of what was going on at the time. So, for example, uh, in the early nineties, we had a lot of freeware RPGs like Castle of the Winds. That you look at them, they have nothing extraordinary about them. They're really basic games, but. They were free games that people were playing on the internet. And like, it's kind of like, let's say, uh, the grandfather of something like uh, Newsground or something like this, mm-hmm. but the, the 90s version of that. And it gives a sense of the whole uh, shareware thing that was going on, freeware. So I think it's important to understand. If you skip that, you cannot have like a to sanitize history. Uh, gaming history has some moments where it's like, we do kind of some dumb things that later tend to be very important. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to include those as well. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at all of computer history through the lens of the games, uh, they're not all going to be good to be impactful or, or to at least, you know, kind of illustrate the context of the time. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. You have to have some games that are more like, well, this is this is what was happening at the time. 
not so much uh, you really need to play this game. Yeah, oh, like a good example is the the Deus Ex sequel, Invisible War. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. That it was uh, is interesting not because it's a great game. It's actually, but it's uh, very emblematic of the moment when you know the whole thing of PC is dead and people were moving to consoles. So we had the first Deus Ex being a, a PC first game. And then the second they tried to port it to the Xbox, the Xbox couldn't handle the game, uh, the large areas very well. So they take the whole Deus Ex experience and try to shove it into a very small areas and it doesn't work very well. But it's very representative of what was going on at the time. We had this whole thing of like, let's move uh, for the first time, very Western computer games into the consoles, and this what was going on. So I, I want to expand on that a little bit more um, because this book doesn't just have a bunch of games in it. You also have some uh, sort of like supplemental articles and that sort of thing that do provide some of the context that you might be missing. If you're like, well, what's so special about this game, or why does, uh, or or even just how to approach some of these games. Uh, you have a lot of, and I think this is something that maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you must have realized when you were growing up in Brazil and didn't have access to the sort of greater CRPG community until uh, until you found the internet, there's a bunch of knowledge that just kind of exists in people's heads. And there is a literacy that's needed in some of these cases to even begin to approach some of these games. So when you're writing a book like this, I mean, there's there's a lot of it. There's things like, you know, you might have to draw your own maps and that sort of thing. But how do you even begin to approach the like literacy problem here? Yeah, I, I agree with you like 100%. And this was one of the main goals of the book. Because I grew up, like I say, when I was born, there was an Amiga 500 in my house. And later we moved into uh, an early PC, like the MS-DOS PC. I have to this day. I never saw like a Commodore sixty four in my life. So how do you tell people how that it, it works? You used to have to load the tapes and all those things. This is very like obscure knowledge for me, who is like in my thirties. But imagine someone who is like in their twenties, they're like someone who's like sixteen years old and want to know about RPGs. So I try to give this context a bit and also explain like. The whole the magic behind these things, because it was such a fascinating evolution for you to follow, but we don't talk very much about computer history isolated from consoles. And it's a huge challenge because if you're talking about consoles, you go, okay, there's the first generation, the second, the third. It's extremely easy for you to say, okay, at this point you have the, the NES, then it comes the Super NES. And so you have the Super Nintendo and you have the graphical jump. It was released at this time, at this date, and this happens. But how do you do that with like, okay, in the 90s, you have the MS-DOS computers, and then they start to have like VGA graphics and 3D graphics, and it's all like a very nuanced project process. How do you explain this to someone? They're like, oh, now we have CD-ROM, so we have digitized audio and a bunch of games are using this. I think it's vital for you to give that context so people can understand that like, until 85, until we have that generation like the Amiga, the Atari ST, computers didn't have a mouse. Yeah. So <laughs> when they appear and you have games like Dungeon Master who makes full use of the mouse, it's like a huge 
technological leap is amazing. And I like not only the game, but also that context for me is as interesting as the game itself. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you don't have console generations with PCs uh, in the same way. I mean, what you're explaining with moving from a console to console, I mean, you at the very least can tell the difference at a glance between an NES game and a Super Nintendo game. But in the PC world, I mean, you might be dealing with things that look like they came from, you know, five years before because they're not made to work with the most cutting edge pieces. I mean, computers are they're buildable things that may have different, you know, you may add things to it to make them a little bit more powerful. You may. Uh... Yeah, you can't just call a game like an IBM DOS game. Right, like, exactly. Because right? that, <laughs> you've got what like a good like 20 years of that really <laughs> like of, yeah, and, of that being a, a, a thing yeah yeah and this is something that i actually put like before you start looking at any game there's an introduction that talks about computer ports mm-hmm. because today you have like you have like digital foundry comparing the playstation and the xbox and going like oh this one has like one frame more yeah. per second but <laughs> the vertical have, resolution like, is 768 as opposed to 740. <laughs> we counted the pixels. Yeah, and then people are like, yes, this is the best console. I, I chose right. <laughs> but then as you say, like if you go to MS-DOS, you have like CGA, EGA, mm-hmm. and VGA in the same generation. Like, So your your game could look like an amazing like 256 colors like artwork of pixel art. Or it could look like crap. It's like Cyan, blue, and black, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not even counting all of the, uh, you know, the different ports and stuff too. Which is actually, I think, my favorite part of the book uh, is just where you show how wildly different some of these games look depending on what hardware they're running on. And uh, you know, I mean, to me, I'm just like, okay, so what? In any, literally, any case. I'm immediately like, what's the true version? Like, what's the <laughs> what's the real vision here? And it, it kind of it kind of freaks me out, kind of scares me. I'm like, I don't know what what the correct thing is. Like, I can tell you which one looks the prettiest, but I mean, what's what's the vision here? What's and how do you determine that? How do people in the CRPG community determine that? Yeah, that is very tricky. We try to include it like a, a short intro at the book explaining that because by default. Most people will have the experience with the DOS version, especially like on good old games, like GOG. It's not good old games anymore, just GOG. Uh, they always release the DOS version. But usually if you go for the Amiga version, it has a, a slightly better colors. Sometimes it's that uh, digital foundry difference. Like, oh, yeah, it has like three colors more. <laughs> and uh, the audio sample is like two bits higher. But sometimes it's a huge difference. The problem is that emulating an Amiga, mm-hmm. like getting an Amiga game and emulating it first, like is a bit shady, and then like it's not stuff you can go out and buy. Well, I you got to you got to you got to dump the boot ROM yourself off your actual Amiga first of all. Yeah, like yeah, it's <laughs> like the full Amiga process. That is what is required of you. Yeah, but uh, it's very tricky. Most games you're okay just playing the DOS version. There are some like very rare exceptions, but usually those are more like curiosities than actual games. One of them that I, I really love is uh, called Alien Fires. And it's this for the Amiga as well. And it used digitized uh, text-to-voice speech. 
So mm. you encounter an NPC and then you use the specific hardware of the Amiga to make the NPC talks to you. But in like really like 80s tech. So it's like, hello. Like that very digital <laughs> voice. <laughs> and it is a, an amazing experience. You're like in a spaceship and an alien appears and starts to talk to you with like that very robotic voice. And you only get that on the Amiga version. It's right. not on the MS-DOS version. But like... Because Sound Blaster wasn't like assumed yet at that point, I would guess. No, and but the thing is, like, I, you don't really should play that game. It's a very bad game. Is that as a curiosity? And we assume that there's a bunch of games that we, we specifically state like this is a curiosity. Like, it's an amazing curiosity. It's a very like uh, evolutionary dead end. They they were trying new technology. Like, it's a dungeon. It's a very unique game because it's a dungeon crawler. So you like you usually in those you have a, a square room, a square maze, and you walk in like four directions. But this one expands, and it's not a forty-five degrees angle. It uses any angle, so a wall may have like a twenty-seven percent, uh, twenty-seven degrees angle, and the other one has like a thirty-degree angle. No. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're like, how do I write this on how my square grid map? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get your protractor out. <laughs> That's awful. I want nothing to do with this. But... Yeah, and then you you start like, okay, if I turn the right four times, I'm back at the same spot. No, you're like, it's a spiral. So you go to a completely different place and you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? It, it, hold on. Can you tell that it's like a certain angle? I mean, could I get a protractor out and actually map this if I was a real geek? Or is it like just you know, approximate and you have to guess. No, no, you can see the angle. You can see like okay. it, it, it's shading. Like it's, <laughs> it's really confusing. And they use this well to hide some secrets. But the whole game, like, it's not a very good game. It's just fun because of that. But it's really fun. So like, I have to mention something like this. It's a curiosity, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I... And that's it's how just... you get to 400 games because you mentioned those. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're talking about how this is something that like, one might want to experience uh, maybe briefly, right? But but the <laughs> yeah. but the you know the setup required for it uh, requires some specialization. I don't know. It just Kelsey. It reminds me a lot of you know this this notion that I I often talk about about how I I want I want to produce a recipe show for playing old games. You know, yeah. Like, like, oh my god, that's exactly what I was thinking about when I was right. This. Yeah, it's like you know that 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 that. You know, we're we're not you know currently producing media or anything, but when we think about like what kind of a show would benefit the world in video game history, like that's kind of what we always come back to is like people need the recipe guide for playing old games, and it's not just a tutorial of like how to set up the Amiga emulator. It's also like how to think about this game, you know, like like how how to how to put yourself back in that time and really understand the game the way it was intended, or like. You know, there's even some notion of like, um, you know, what trainers to apply that we th- we think are fine now, <laughs> you know, like because the, the rules are maybe. Unfair. Yeah, you can save states like you don't need to go back. Exactly. To the- <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like and I think people need that that level of instruction to be able to appreciate and enjoy old games. Um, and it uh, it makes me think a lot, actually, about um, an essay that's in the book that I, I particularly enjoyed, which is Michael Abbott's essay about how uh, he assigns Ultima 4 to his students um, every year. 
And 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 what he's observed is that every year the ability to play Ultima Four seems to be degrading, uh, because it's like our our literacy in like that it's almost like trying to read old English or something, right? Like old English kind of devolves <laughs> into or evolves, I should say, into right. We didn't devolve our language. Uh, like, you know, old English like is unrecognizable now because we've, we've gotten so separated from it that, it, you know, we kind of see this happening in real time with games and it, it would be interesting to, uh, to, to maybe change that, that, uh, that course to, um, to help people play Ultima 4 a little bit, maybe. Well, I think that's kind of what the conclusion that that article came to at the end. Um, I thought he said he's just going to keep throwing them in there. Yeah. <laughs> no, he said, no, I mean, well, I mean, he said that he, you know, he understands that like a different approach is needed or so. I, I can't remember the exact wording, but, um, but, you know, I mean, he makes the point that, yeah, the literacy is just not there anymore. And the especially fascinating part, because I mean, I assume there's all kinds of, literacy gaps when it comes to um yeah like knowing that you might need to be drawing your own map or that sort of thing but the thing that really stuck out to me was that you know he sent them all the pdf of the things that came in that box like the instructions and all of that and no one read them they just (laughs) struggled and that was that was fascinating to me because i'm like we we've hit a point now where instruction books and manuals and stuff are so rare and uh when they do exist they're like it's like haha this ps4 game still has a manual that's cute you know (laughs) like no they're they're not used anymore and we're um yeah we've completely hit a point where people don't know it don't even recognize what the point of a manual might be and know that they need to look at it at all yeah but like in their defense Ultima is a very specific case that is not like a manual that says like, oh, you should go this place or like, it's not teaching game. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like an atlas, a history guide of the world. And it gives like all this huge like lore dump. You you get literally a book. I actually have it here, the (laughs) Ultima 4 book. I really like it. It explains the whole backstory of the the world. So when in-game an NPC says to you, you have to go like to the land of compassion, you actually have to open the book and like, which is the land of compassion? Like, what, what is written here? And <laughs> right. it's an experience that like, it came from technical limitations at first. So you have that thing, like, especially in early RPGs that they want to put text events and like more elaborate things on computer games that don't fit the memory because mm-hmm. it's so limited. So they have this thing like, read paragraph three. And you open the manual and there's like paragraph three. Yeah, that my, my memory of that is Wasteland specifically. Is like, yeah, you, Wasteland, you could... but it's like all the way back in like the late 70s, mm. uh, you had Temple of Upside. I don't know how to, like Dungeon Quest, Temple of Upside. And it's basically like a choose your own adventure, a book, but you have the, you play the, let's say the combat and the interactive part on the computer. So you enter the room, you open the manual, read the description of the room, then you take an action and move to the next one. Mm. And then like, you're always like, you're playing like literally with the, the book open and the computer and like doing the same, both at the same time. And this is, was part of the charm. And I think what's really tricky to explain to people is that something like that, you can adapt to the game. Let's say if you were to make a remaster of Wasteland like they did, they include the paragraphs into the game. So you don't have to open the menu anymore when you're playing the Wasteland Remaster. 
But in some cases, those limitations were actually part of the intended design. Mm-hmm. So the same people that remastered Wasteland uh, from Interplay, they also remastered the Bard's Tale. And they added some functionalities to make life easier, like the option to save. You can uh, put some option to make combats easier and all those things. But they also added automap, so you don't have to draw the map yourself. Which, if you want to, let's say, play the game in a way to experience it, I guess it can help, but it's actually not the real game that you're playing. And I don't mean this like in a derogatory way. They're like, oh, you're playing the casual version. You're actually losing the main challenge, which was to map the game. And the game had specific challenges, like you enter into a dungeon tile, and it will teleport you to another tile. Or the screen was black, you didn't know where you were. Or it will rotate you, not telling you where, like... You think you're going north, but then you're turning west, and you don't know when that happened. That was the main challenge in navigating a dungeon. The moment you have an auto map that does that automatically, you're losing like half the game. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I mean, I just I'm curious because a lot of people are going to just immediately be turned off by having to do that now because you know we're so far removed from when that was the reality of playing those games. I mean as someone who wants to share these RPGs with the world and and make sure people kind of understand them, I mean, what's the play here? I mean, is it better for there to be a version that exists that people might interact with? Is there like an in-between that we're missing? That's why we need the recipe master. (laughs) But the thing is like, if you, in a way, like, like imagine, I I don't want to be like uh, arrogant, but imagine if you... They tell someone like, oh, there's like uh, Russian movies who are really amazing, like Stalker, but they're very long. So you can just like watch them like three times the speed. You're kind of losing the, the focus. And just to say yeah. like, checklist, I watched that. And I think like, if you want to play a game like uh, a game that focuses very heavily on mapping dungeons with an auto mapper, it's like, why are you even doing this? It's just to say like, I play this? Because the rest of the game is not that interesting. I'm not saying that like uh, you're playing the wrong way. I'm saying you're losing the most important part. It's like, let's say, if you play a JRPG and you say, okay, I'm going to use a cheat so there's no random encounters and I insta-kill every boss with one hit. You can play that way. Like You can experience, let's say, Final Fantasy VII that way so you can see the story. But the story itself is like worth experiencing. Those games, they don't have much else beyond like combat and exploring <laughs> dungeons. It is, they are dungeon crawlers. Right, right, right. I was, okay, yeah. Because I was I was almost ready to disagree because um, a JRPG I really like is the original Fantasy Star, which is uh, w- which has dungeon crawling elements. Um, and the recent-ish uh, remake on, on Switch has an auto-mapper for those sections. And... But the point of that game is not... Yeah, well, it has a fascinating story. <laughs> like It's more yeah, you, robust I, game. Yeah, I, th- I still think it's as intended to map the stupid dungeons out. Uh, I hate it. You know, I, I, I hate it. I never... Like, I just looked it up. You know, I looked up maps. Um, but, you know, my opinion, having played the the that version of it and also having played the original going back not not to its release or anything but to the late 90s um you know i i i was of the opinion that like it's still the game at heart but uh to your point 
Felipe, it's like it has a lot more than 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 dungeon crawling. It's yeah, not a dungeon mean, crawler game. Yeah. And I don't mean like every old game is like this. Like yeah. I still think that, for example, a much older game, Wizardry, the first one, if you play the best version of that game is actually the NES for the mm-hmm, Super mm-hmm. Uh, Super Nintendo version that not only has auto map but has like much better graphics and uh, some quality of life features for the, the controller. I actually say, okay, that game, the combat and the exploration is so good that even with the auto map, you don't lose anything. Yeah. So for that, I think like it's really about the quality of the game. Like if you're going back to a game where the only thing that they offer is a dungeon and use an auto map, but like it kind of loses the purpose. So, so it's, a, it's on a game by game basis, basically. I mean, it's just well, it's are also there the personality things... of the person recommending that. You know what I mean? Like, and it's sure. and it. Uh, I don't know. I just we got to make this show, everyone. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you one hundred percent. It's, it's, a... it's not just like the definitive instructions. It's it's like you need a tastemaker to like show you how how not just how to play, but how to enjoy. Uh, yeah, and that I games. think is a. At the very start of the book, I say, like, if you want to go into dungeon crawlers, like, don't start in the 80s and don't yeah. force yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if you want a modern experience, Legend of Greenbrook 2, which came out, I think, in 2014, 2016, it's a very recent game, is an amazing. Like, if you take the dungeon crawlers, it's one of the best of the genre. And it has, like, super fancy graphics, auto mapper, like, it's a really robust and really interesting game. If you play that and you say, I want more of those, yeah. then like, let's say, go back in time slowly. You don't and have you can to explore backwards and see the roots and everything, but you don't, I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like this book is, you must play all of these games to understand CRPGs. It's just like, here's all of the things that make up CRPGs and you can decide if these sound worth playing and you know you can you can explore the roots deeper as you learn to enjoy them (laughs) yeah one thing we were talking about is how a lot of knowledge is on people's head and it's hard to gather this was one of the goals of the book and one thing that i'm pretty sure like people like you frank who deal with a lot of people who collect and everything a lot of those people like frankly speaking they're kind of assholes and they hoard knowledge and things and I remember when I was doing this work, when I was myself trying as a Brazilian who didn't have any contact with those games to go back in time and see them. If you ask for advice or let's say, how can I very legally emulate uh, computer hardware from Japan, like uh, PC-98 and those things. If you go into those forums and ask, there will be some people who go like, oh, you have to do the legwork. You have to understand. You have to learn by yourself. And I wanted to do the exact opposite. Here's what all those people from those forums know. So you don't have like to deal with those very complicated people. And it, here's like, you don't need to know this. You can explore if you want. But if you just want to have an idea of what's going on, here's like a, a nice review for you to have the information. Then you can decide like, if you just want to play modern games, like if you just want to talk about Mass Effect, you can read the book and you can see that like the developers took a lot of ideas from RPGs from the 80s, like uh, Star Control, Star Flight. A lot of ideas come from there. You don't need to play the game. You can just like, oh, this is very interesting. You can try to play the game. If you don't like it, it's okay. Like, the book doesn't want to judge you. Like, oh, yeah, this is like for real players and this is a, a casual garbage. 
Well, and I mean, going back to what you said about uh, people kind of being gatekeepy about this knowledge, I mean, I think part of it too is just that it's a lot of work to go back and retrace your steps on, you know, if someone's been in their niche for 15 years or whatever, um, to sort of retrace the steps and actually compile all of this into a nice introductory guide for other people. I mean, it's, it's thankless work. And I think it's incredible that, you know, for the CRPG community, like you and 119 volunteers <laughs> have actually put in this work because that's what it takes. It, it might take a hundred people doing this stuff just for the love of spreading it with other people. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine for, you know, like I, I am also in the game collecting sort of communities and stuff. I can't imagine people wanting to put in the legwork to really uh, compile all of this stuff, but they do talk about it. Like they're willing to talk about it. It's just to go all the way back to the beginning and, and get it all from scratch. I mean, that's a lot of work. But I, I actually disagree with you a bit. I think a lot of people do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. It's just that, it's posted, let's say, on the random forum thread that has like has yeah, two yes. views. Yeah. So, like, I don't. Actually I guess that's what I meant by compiling. It's like you have to go and, and scrape from all of the places where the work has been, you know, hashed out, right? And we've already lost a lot of those websites for uh, retro yeah. gaming. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I was going to say that I, I also at least somewhat disagree. Just as far as the the collecting community specifically because there there's a there's been a ton of knowledge share over the years i mean that's how you know that's that's how that hobby evolves by nature is that it it is all about knowledge right it's all about knowing what there is to collect so um you know even really early on you get things like the the digital press guides that are actually cataloging all the releases and things like that you have a lot of knowledge share on forums about you know label variations of atari games and stuff like that and 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 i i think it's less a you know maybe the knowledge being a little more inaccessible now i I think it's less a uh that community and it's more just the modern internet at this point well i mean i think that's that's more what i was getting at although you're Mm. right about digital press being you know there was a physical digital press guide for many years but um you know this work was done but some of these sites don't exist anymore. Yep. And it's like, you have to know which site to go find that form post on if it still exists. Um, you may even have to know to ask the correct questions to find the sort of information that you don't know you don't know. And I just ran into this two days ago um, <laughs> with, I mean, and Felipe may appreciate this. I'm fascinated by Playtronic in Brazil uh, with the, <laughs> the, the official like Nintendo releases by Playtronic in Brazil. And, and, um, we both just bought some, we did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, the only resource I knew for like which games were ever even published by Playtronic in Brazil was Nintendo age. And that's just gone now. And that's not a list that exists anymore. And someone did a scrape of Nintendo age, but, and you can even sort and, get to playtronic but you can only look at the data for like page one of four so i don't know anything past the letter like c <laughs> at this point so yeah i mean this this knowledge does tend to to disappear pretty rapidly and all i was getting at is that this is a book like a physical yeah. book and a pdf that has compiled all of this in one space tells you which i mean 
there were things when I was reading this where I didn't realize these were questions or things I would, would even have to consider. I mean, you have things in here that are like, just so you know, uh, save often with these old things because <laughs> they don't have auto saving. I mean, it's, it's just all these literacy things that if I were just like, I want to play a CRPG, where do I start? I don't have to start Googling and trying to figure out what I don't know and, and uh, to ask the questions that I don't even know to ask yet there's a place for all of this now. And I think that's just such an enormous um, cultural resource that so many of these hobbies are missing. Yeah, I think, like Frank said, it's a lot based on the internet today that is very like more. If I had began, let's say, my journey to explore RPGs in the modern internet, I think I would have a much harder time than I had mm -hmm. back then when right. forums were so important. But... As someone who spent a lot of time, like I've been in the RPG codex for like 13 years or something like this, and you see those questions popping up, and it really depends on the person that replies them first. Like every yeah. time there will be someone who's like, which is the best RPG to play? And you may get like <laughs> an actual very interesting list, or there will, get, there will be one guy who goes like, oh yeah, like, f*** you, like get out of here, like we don't like your kind of people here, like go, go play Skyrim, you know? It's a very nuanced thing. They're like noob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Depending on who you get, you may like be fascinated forever by RPGs, or you may be put off like I hate those people. Yeah. And there's a lot of those things that I remember people asking, and RPGs are particular like finicky about this. Like I was talking about wizardry, how it's a nice game, and you can play the SNS version that is like really nice and friendly, and then. Like, a Nintendo game at that console that you can play is very fancy graphics. But when you start, and I explained this on the book, you have to roll the stats of your party. You have to create six characters from zero, rolling their stats. If you roll them wrong, like, you're never going to get past the first floor. Mm. And that kind of thing is very difficult for you to tell. Like, let's say, now with Dark Souls, is easier to explain that, that you can make like a very bad character, but still keep progressing. But in those games, it's like, is the game really hard, or is my party that is garbage? Like, you yeah. can see that even like in modern games, like uh, uh, Baldur's Gate, Josh Scheuer, who did like uh, Pillars of Eternity, he specifically said that his design was to try to avoid this. So you can make a mage and put all your, your points into strength, and make like the muscle mage, as he used to call <laughs> And still beat the game because it's such like a, an entry barrier. And if you don't understand the game, if you just like get it for the first time and want to enjoy it and you run into that wall, it can like put you off forever. So, I mean, this is maybe a big question, but it's do you feel that people should play CRPGs or is this like, you know what I mean? Like, 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 is this, is this, is this kind of a mission of yours that people should experience these or do you think it's like uh you'll know if it's for you 100 you know if, if it is for you <laughs> i think one of the most important things on the crpg book i know i'm like the editor so i'm very biased on this but one thing that makes it like stand out and be more accessible is that i'm not a fanboy like i really like rpgs of course i made this whole book but I'm e I will easily tell you that like 90% of the games on that book you don't need to play. Like it's mm -hmm. just like look at the pictures, this is so nice, and like move on. 
Read the little description. You're good. <laughs> yeah, because like there's a lot of people who are like so passionate. They'll say like, oh yeah, you have to play every single Final Fantasy game in order. And you cannot save state on anything. And that is such... I know it's a lot of passion and the person is trying to get you like to enjoy his hobby, but it's also a form of gatekeeping. And it can put people off like, yes, I have to play this 100-hour game. Like, I take it a lot from the, the roguelike community, which is very similar to the CRPG community in a sense, that if you, you have some people who are like, yes, you have to finish, like uh, I finished 300 times the hardest uh, roguelikes ever. But if you talk to the developers... They're actually like, yeah, I never finish my own game, like whatever. <laughs> Just enjoy it. Like I create a character, die on the first floor, and that's it. Even the I was just gonna say there's there's a difference to me, it seems, between you know, insisting that other people recreate and live your childhood as you lived it, and actually wanting to just share this experience in whatever way is going to make the most sense for that person. You know, I mean, it, some people are going to actually want to play 300 hours of a roguelike, and uh, that will never be me. And if you insist that I have your tastes and your childhood, then I'm just going to bounce off of the game completely. Yeah, but even even looking at those, like, I have, I played 300 hours of some roguelikes, but I never beat them because I'm really bad. But I still <laughs> enjoy it. And the developers embrace this, and you have to... To tell this like to players as well, it's not like you're not playing this to be the best guy. You don't have to make the most optimized build. Like if you're playing Baldur's Gate, if you go to a forums and say what is the best class, they will tell you, oh, you have to make min max and make like the Kensai Mage Slayer class, and you have to pick this blade here and do this and this and this. Right. And like when I played that game, I was like 11 years old. I could barely read English. My brother, he was so bad in English when we began playing those games that he just killed everyone. Like, we played <laughs> Fallout 1. I could, I was like 11 years old, so I was doing the quest and doing everything. My brother was like, ah, I don't know how to read English. I just kill everyone in every single village. <laughs> like, he had fun. Like, Well, the game is designed that way. Yeah, you, they, you can yeah. do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it is, it's also like a, a form of... I think like when you're talking about RPGs, one huge entry barrier to them is the language when you're talking about someone from outside the English-speaking world, outside the native. And this is why it's so rare to see like RPGs from countries that don't have a lot of English speakers. Like We don't have CRPGs in Brazil because although we have a very strong like tabletop uh, culture, we own tabletop like uh, rule sets and everything, we don't develop RPGs. Because they were so hard for people to get into. Like, translation of games, like, even Mass Effect now, you don't have an official translation of Mass Effect to Portuguese. So a lot of those games, they're really hard to get into. So we have to make it accessible in a way. Isn't the, the more barriers we can destroy, be it language, gameplay, all those things, the better, I think. Well, that's a really good segue into sort of what you're, trying to do now with this book, right? I mean, you're, you're looking to expand outside of uh, what ended up in this 400, <laughs> this list of 400 games uh, and kind of evolve into other countries and, and the RPGs that defined, you know, the other areas of the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it was because of the origin of the book, like looking back, that I went to, uh, of course, on the internet, you have people from all nationalities. 
So most people on the RPG codex are actually like uh, Eastern European. There's a lot of Polish, a, a lot of Russian people. But it's still like a very, let's say, I don't know how to put this like in a polite way in English, but like rich countries. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when I was in school, like the first world countries we learned. Well, there's actually a huge segment of games and RPGs that were developed in poorer regions that we don't talk about. And I think is a huge fading of the book, which is why I'm making like an updated version, but also of like the community in general, like, because of course I went after information like on other books, on websites and everything. And those games, they simply don't exist because they only had, um, they never had English translations. Like some of them may have like fan translations, but because of this, we tend to ignore them. And I don't mean just like something like, oh, the games from China, even like from France. Uh, like Ubisoft is one of the biggest video game companies in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But how many people know that like they began in the 80s doing RPGs that were released only in France? And you have like, they were really like French in a way. They have like that very unique art style and aesthetics that is really fascinating. So I'm going to like to... to kill French right now, but they have some games like uh, Fair and Flame and Le Maitre Absolute from like uh, 86, 87, which are really amazing when you look at them. But I didn't include on the book when I did the first time because no one talks about them and they are only in French. They don't have like a, a full translation in English anywhere, not even by fans. Well, it's difficult to, I mean, in a book like this, you're trying to explain why these games are interesting and why people should play them. And if you don't have French speakers willing to step up and do that, I mean, you know, you can't, it makes it very difficult when there is a language barrier. I mean, it's difficult to learn how to talk about a game and explain it if you don't speak the language. But yeah, it's, it's difficult, but I say, uh, we're on the internet. I can just go on Twitter and say, hey, there's any French speaker who wants to help right. me with this? Because the whole <laughs> book is made with volunteers. And this is actually a failing that I had that we were talking before how like every single game has a fan, right? So if you if you go on the internet and ask, which game should I include? And I made that mistake. Like I would get a list of hundreds of games. Like, oh, there was like this Amiga Dungeon Crawler that is really amazing. There were some specifics that only were available like in certain languages. Like, uh, uh, let's say, there was the German game, I think, what, Whale's Voyage, which is a dungeon crawler for the Amiga CD that's like really obscure and interesting. It had a fan translation. But, like, I also had contact from some Chinese people, and this, I think, it ties to the article that I posted recently, that they told me, you should have Chinese Paladin there. It's like a super important game. And it's actually on the book. There is a, at the end of the book, there's a section called uh, Fan Translations that has some like uh, Japanese games that were translated, has like that Hideo Kojima RPG from the, the 80s. And it has like a very short segment of like, oh, yeah, there's Chinese Paladin, which, is, which I actually played the full game. It has a fan translation in English and it's a very good game. So I wrote, oh, this is a Chinese game that is very good. When I actually delve into those games, and like this was after publishing. This is not like a good game. This is not like a, a cool curiosity. This is like if you get RPGs from the nineties, this is easily like one of the most important one of like if you think on, on a global scale, like top ten most important RPGs released in the nineties. Because 
it is like the most important RPG of China, and in a sense of also like uh, East Asia. And it influenced, it started a huge series. It, it influenced like the television, how they made video games. They had two TV series based on it, not just like one, like The Witcher. They had one in the 2000s and they are doing a new one now in 2021. And it's such an important game. It was the game that established the entire Chinese uh, video game industry, gave them a path. And Chinese industry has over 100 RPGs, single player RPGs released in the 90s. So you look at this and like, where is this like in our media? Like I made the full book with 400 games and I only include one of them. Mm-hmm. Like this is not talk about like, uh, of course, I, I don't be rude to other people, to other historians, but like those games, what's the chance of them getting to a hall of fame, into a list of the most important yeah. games of all time? It's right. something very outside or, or let's say this Western canon of video games. And it's something that, I really want to fix in the update of the book that I'm doing, not only for Chinese games, but also South Korea. Turkey has one of the most interesting RPGs of the 90s as well. Like There's so many interesting games that are really influential in that area, but we never talk about them. Of course, there's the language barrier, but we can do better. That's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for me, where, where this has come up in, in my research is that... Um, I've always really been interested in in the NES, the eight bit Nintendo, and and um, well, Kelsey knows where I'm going with this, but it's like there there is a sort of canon of what the games are that that like counts, right? And it tends to be sort of uh, collector driven in a way, and it tends to be um, I love this word ethnocentric. You know, it's it's very much like it's 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 what is canon here in the region I happen to live in, um, and. With the NES specifically, like you, if you, there's a lot of stuff that happened globally um, past what we consider that system's lifetime that is really interesting. I mean, you mentioned Chinese RPGs. I think there's like a hundred that were made for the the Famicom in China uh, in the '90s that that is never a part of this canon discussion of what was on the system. Well, and they're they're often called bootlegs like they're not even they're not even given the designation of like these are real games they're just not you know english language games or whatever i mean they're literally called bootlegs like they're they're not real (laughs) because they came out of you know because they don't stamp their seal of approval on them right (laughs) yeah and it's not just china it's it's like there was a really interesting game development scene in in korea in in like the early 90s on that system there there's um I mean, there's all kinds of interesting stuff uh, that just doesn't fit the canon. And, and I, I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than like, I agree with this approach. Cause I, I feel like at this point um, it's kind of your responsibility now to, to represent this. Cause, <laughs> cause you have, you have edited the tome of CRPGs. And, and if, if you exclude those, it's, you know, <laughs> it's all You're your writing fault. Writing the history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I take full responsibility. That's why I'm updating it. Yeah. But we have this problem that like the whole industry as a whole has this problem that is actually by design in a way. Like you're talking about how those NES games were bootlegs. When we had like in the 2000s, the whole thing about this market consolidation, the rise of the AAA games, mm-hmm. the opposite of the AAA games were the shovelware from Russia. There was a lot of those. And 
is a specific market term that was like created by the industry and by the press and everything to say, these are the good games, these are the bad ones, like they are janky, they are shovelware, don't bother with them. And I think it's something like that really bothers me that in a way is getting even worse right now. Because I can completely understand that like Chinese Paladin is from 1995. So I completely understand that like computer gaming world in 1995 in the US didn't have internet and a Chinese correspondent to go and say, this is revolutionizing the Chinese industry. But today, the... We have a canon as well, like this Western canon of video games that is still very strong. So, for example, what are the biggest video games in the world right now? It's not Call of Duty. It's not Resident mm-hmm. Evil. They are mobile games from China, from Vietnam that are really played Genshin a lot. Impact. Yeah, no, not Genshin Impact. Genshin Impact, like, that crossed the boundaries. It was like a mobile game from China that went into consoles and PCs. I'm talking about mobile-owned games like... Uh, in Brazil and in, in all Latin America and in Asia, it's super popular, Crossfire and Garena Free Fire. These are games, like, their numbers are insane. Uh, Free Fire from Garena, it has like 80 million daily players. It's not like, it has more players in a day than like the entire PlayStation ecosystem has. And you never talk about them. Like if you go, I did this once, a bit of, of the, a bit, out of spite, let's say, if you go like I say into Kotaku and IGN and search for those games, they don't have a single article. And I think this is something that when we move on in time, and let's say people try to understand what was going on in video games at the time, they will have a really hard time. Like, how can you go into the media and not understand what are the most popular video games of all time? Like, what are people playing? It's not Resident Evil. Resident Evil has like right. 3 million sales. We're talking about games that have 80 million players every single day. Yeah. And well, and this came up even a little bit, even on U.S. soil in uh, an episode we did recently with uh, Ben Hansen about PopCap, where it's like, is, is it a failing of games journalism to have so little coverage of, you know, games that just because they're quote unquote casual or they're not on the the consoles they're not on the on the things for gamers you know that i mean how much history are we losing by there not being there's simply not being coverage of this stuff and there's a bunch of those over time let's say uh, if you go way back like muds is something that's usually not covered in the gaming canon the freeware games that i was talking about like from the internet like no one's going to talk about except Doom, which is like the iconic one. But I'm talking like the, the freeware from the 90s. Then you have uh, Neopets. Like, why Neopets is not part of the gaming canon? It's such a, a like a landmark for us. There you have know? not been any GDC talks about Neopets, and exactly. that bothers me so much. And <laughs> I made Neopets a tweet about this like, last year, I think. <laughs> what is the difference, in a sense, from like The Sims and Neopets? They're like basically in the same area we're talking about. And then you move into Facebook games, which are also like, yeah, we don't talk about those. And now mobile. And the thing is like, before you could say, okay, the most popular things are like, let's say people are still playing Call of Duty. They're the bigger numbers. But now they are the smallest numbers. Like if you compare the, the relevance or something like the PlayStation 5 in, in media space that it gets compared to mobile games, and of course, you can have outlets, you can have media that specialize and say, okay, we're going to cover consoles only. 
we're going to cover only like this triple A space. But it's not something that is openly said. Like, and it, I think it will be a big mistake because a lot of people that I talk, like people from the industry even, they don't understand like how big Roblox is right now, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Minecraft made the jump. Minecraft was like this whole scene that actually, okay, this is an indie game. But we have these gaps that makes people think that like if they just follow the news, they will understand what is going on, but they don't. We don't understand what the industry really is. And let me give you like an example from Brazil, which is something that I understand the media not covering, but even the Brazilian media doesn't talk much about it. We had a huge scene on Euro Truck Simulator was very popular in Brazil, was one of the most popular games in the country. I had no idea. <laughs> that is news to me. Yeah, a lot. We have a lot of success with Aero Truck Simulator and free games like uh, all those free MMOs. They have a lot of players in Brazil and free, things like uh, free to play things, especially that have mobile ports like Yu Gi Oh! Duel Links is like extremely popular. But that whole scene about Aero Truck Simulator, which only runs in a PC, because Brazil is a poor country and the most common platform are mobile, we actually had our own version of Aero Truck Simulator adapted to Brazilian like reality, which are the how can I translate this in English? Like we call them motoboy, but it's like the, the people other delivery, you know, the people with the bikes and the box in the back. Mm-hmm. This is the Brazilian version of Aero Truck Simulator. It's like Uber Delivery Guy Simulator, which is something that is very popular in Brazil, even before Uber. We all had this thing about people in the bikes delivering documents and food and pizza. And those are mobile games where you play exactly that. You get on a bike, you customize your bike, and then you deliver things. It's the exact same gameplay loop, but adapt to Brazilian realities, made for mobile. And some of them, they're actually based on GTA San Andreas, that people chop the, the whole game and make a model out of it and sell it. Like, this is GTA San Andreas turning into a, a bike delivery game. <laughs> and it's such a, like, a fascinating industry that I understand that it is a niche, that you won't have like IGN making an article like the top 10 like bike delivery games from mobile, sure. but at one point they have to be mentioned. Like it's part of the game history that we're going to lose because even in Brazil, there's not a lot of work about those. So do you have a suggestion for people who want to sort of get a more globalized understanding of what's going on out there in the world of games? And I mean, where do you even go for this information? Obviously you can't go to the mainstream US-based ones like IGN and that sort of thing, but is there a place that's covering it? at all no i think not it's a very sad thing to say what i usually do out of curiosity is that sometimes i use google translator to get the opinion from uh, different outlets mainstream authors but across the world so i think it's a huge failing in a sense that for example when the witcher came out is that game 100 based on polish culture have you ever read a review of a polish person about the witcher mm-hmm. like have any like US mainstream media or anything ever invited someone like a, a Polish guy to talk about the experience? And it's fascinating to read that. Also, like remember, I think it was Call of Duty or Battlefield that had a thing about uh, a mission where you do like some war crimes and things like this related to Russia. Mm-hmm. Go into the Russian video game outlets and see the, the news about this. It's like it's such an interesting thing. 
I do that sometimes, like, uh, as, as a Brazilian, I can read, like, Portuguese and Spanish, so I check, like, the websites of Latin America, but also, like, randomly go, like, for this research, I went to a bunch of, like, Chinese uh, uh, video game websites, and you you can, like, you very easily understand the gifts of it with Google Translator, and it's super fun to see the comments, because you're getting, like, the most brutal experience of, like, what people are thinking, what people are saying about the industry, when uh, that very popular game that's coming out, the Black, the, the Chinese one of the Monkey King, Wukong, you know the one that's like a Dark Soul with the Monkey King that's coming from China? I'm familiar with the, the, the story, but I, I didn't actually, I don't know about this game specifically. Yeah, it's called Black Myth Wukong, and it's like a, a Dark Souls kind of game, but based on the Monkey King myth, uh, the Journey to the West. And it has like AAA graphics and it has a lot of people now paying attention to game development from China. But also the Chinese are super excited and they're like, oh, this is the first time I'm feeling proud of my country since, let's say, we lost RPGs to the MMO scene and the mobile scene, which is something that happened like globally in a sense. Like you have that whole transition that like a lot of people were making RPGs in the 90s, then they shift to consoles and to MMOs and to online games in the 2000s because countries like uh, China and Korea, they didn't have official uh, console development uh, like access to those. It almost like 100% went to, to online games, so the industry was a bit lost. Like in the West, we had like Bethesda stopping stop doing like Morrowind for PC and move to consoles. BioWare stopped doing like Neverwinter Nights and move to consoles. But this was not a possibility for them. Like they couldn't get make games for the Xbox that easily. So they completely lost and went into the scene of like MMOs. And now they're feeling like proud. Like Genshin Impact was like, is making a lot of money, but it still feel like a bit like uh, gacha, you know, like it's to play make money but now we're having like the return of the full triple a industry from china so it's really exciting to see those movements happening outside of the mainstream but they will become like impossible to ignore i think in like three years most of the mainstream games you will have like to talk about china when talking about them absolutely i agree with you um Let's wrap it up there. Uh, Felipe, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Uh, where can people find you and the CRPG book project on the internet? So they can find me on Twitter on Felipe Pepe, everything together. So it's like Pepe And you can also uh, get the book from Bitmap Bookstore, the hardcover version, or from my website, the free PDF. Uh, you just search like CRPG book on the internet is the first link. And I also like take this opportunity to make an invite since we were talking about how people can help. I'm now updating the book and we're always looking for people who can help. So if you want to help, like either if you're like from America and you want to help us with like some reviews, or even if you are from Korea and China and Turkey and you want to write about those games, we're looking for people that can help with us. So this is a way. And, uh, I would appreciate like anyone who can contact me on, on Twitter or email me at crpgbook at uh, gmail.com. So sales of the physical book actually uh, benefit charity. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the whole thing is like when you make a project like this, uh, this size, this scope with so many contributors, 
they usually go wrong because of money. And you see that like with modding and things like this. Like we are selling the book and we're making like a, a decent amount. Like in total, I think it was like $25,000 so far that we made. But if we split that between contributors, like it doesn't make sense. It's almost yeah. nothing across four years. And we also have like famous people helping. Like we had uh, Tim Kane. We have uh, a lot. We have reviewers from back then. So like I you got, got like Scorp- Scorpia yeah. out of yeah. the fire. Yeah. Yeah. I was super happy with that. <laughs> but how do you pay those people? So it doesn't make any sense to make this a commercial release. So from the start, it was a non-profit project. Like I was going to do it for to have the PDF online available. But then I managed to contact Bitmap Books and came this idea of making a hardcover version because people were printing the whole PDF and like sending me pictures yeah. like, oh, I printed, <laughs> I make a book and like I put a spiral. But the whole idea was like, okay, we cannot sell this, but we cannot profit from this. So that's turned into a charity. And being Brazilian, of course, I pushed the, like to, to, a, to a charity here in Brazil that helps people from from poor communities, like from the favelas, to get a chance to study. It's called Vocação. And it's really good because like $25,000 may not sound like a lot of money in like for an American, but when you turn that, like you convert that into Brazilian money, the exchange rate is like amazing. It's like, this is like over 100 minimum wages in Brazil. So mm. this can like fund an entire school for like several years, this kind of money. And it, I'm really happy we're doing this. So uh, usually the, at first the book was going to be like a very limited run, but because it was selling and it was a charity, we're like, okay, let's let's do a reprint. Like no harm from that. Amazing. Uh, Felipe, thank you again so much. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much for the invite and have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.